You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, Psalm 130 is on page 624 of the church Bible. If you're turning there or checking your smartphone or your iPad and looking up the index for Psalms and you're a visitor, uh, let me say that St. Peter's is always full of surprises uh, and uh, David Robertson calculates them Sunday by Sunday. Uh, You may think we also uh, sing happy birthday uh, unaccompanied, but it isn't a psalm, so don't, uh, don't fall into that error. Uh, he, he would give Alice, who's an accountant by profession, uh, one of the few passages in the Old Testament that refers to VATs, and, uh, and then to crown it all, you wonder why does he often say, uh, just before I'm going to preach in a psalm, this is my favorite psalm. And that's a little psychological trick that preachers use with each other. And they, you need to understand that the subtext of it is, so let's see what you can do with my favorite psalm, Mr. <laughs> preacher. But we are wise to David Robertson's ways. So let's uh, leave uh, these flippancies aside and turn to what is, uh, by any standard, uh, a very sobering and yet at the same time very wonderful psalm. Um, And it's worth commenting, actually, uh, before we read it, that there are few things that seem to frighten people more today than being sober and serious. Uh, One of the things I've noticed over the years is increasingly the way people deal with death publicly at funeral services is to have as much fun as possible. Um, But if you fail to be sober and serious, you can never really be joyful. And uh, this is what lies at the heart of this psalm, that the way to freedom and the way to joy and the way to forgiveness and the way to fellowship with God uh, is a dark way uh, because it means uh, recognizing and facing up to our true condition. So, Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with Him is full redemption. He Himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. In the 16th century, professors 
of theology, of which Martin Luther was one, were not particularly well paid. And in order to supplement the household income, it wasn't all that unusual. Luther did it, Calvin and Mrs. Calvin did it. It wasn't all that unusual for the professors to take students in. And so, the professor's house became essentially the hall of residence for the students of theology, and they would eat round the table. Uh, Martin Luther uh, was particularly famous for his one-liners, and the students who sat round his table, as uh, theological students do, loved to ask him questions, uh, often awkward and irrelevant questions, and then they would take down his answers, and so we have a whole uh, substantial volume of what is called Martin Luther's table talk. And on one occasion, one of these uh, bright young theological students posed the question to Martin Luther, Dr. Luther, which Psalms are the greatest Psalms? And Luther, uh, who was always uh, sharper than his students, answered immediately, the Pauline Psalms. And as he saw the glazed-over looks on the faces of students thinking, surely Dr. Luther knows that Paul did not write any of the Psalms. One of them sharply said, well, which ones are the Pauline Psalms? And Luther immediately referred to the Psalms that in the history of the church have usually been known as the penitential Psalms. The ones most familiar to us are 32 most famous Psalm 51 and Psalm 130. And he said that because, of course, he saw in these Psalms partly a reflection of his own experience, burdened by sin and discovering the grace of God in the gospel, but also because he saw in that series of Psalms the gospel embedded in the Old Testament Scriptures. And it's true, actually, that Christians do think of Psalm 130 as belonging to a, a broader category, seven Psalms of repentance, faith, and forgiveness. But it would be a mistake for us to read this Psalm as though in the Psalms, it was embedded in the penitential Psalms. In the Psalms, as we've been studying them from 120 through 134, the 15 Psalms of Ascent, this particular Psalm has been taken by the compiler of this little hymn book for festival occasions. And this one particular Psalm has been placed in this particular location. And we've been noting how, in a sense, these Psalms of Ascent do seem to have a pattern of spiritual progress. I've sometimes described it as a circular staircase, and other times as a, as a screwdriver. As the psalmist goes round similar themes. He does it in groups of three psalms at a time, goes round similar themes, and anticipates that in this week of convention or festival gathering in Jerusalem, 
focusing on the Lord, the ministry of His Word, the fellowship of His people, the wonder of praising God with tens of thousands of others, that there would be a kind of general pattern to what the individual pilgrim would experience. First time I went to the Keswick Convention was in 1979. They were still using what used to be called the Keswick pattern. So, if you were the preacher on the Tuesday night, you knew that you were supposed to preach on victory over sin. It's not like that any longer. But it used to be sin on Monday, victory over sin on Tuesday, the fullness of pardon on Wednesday, consecration on Thursday, and then ministry, service, and mission on Friday. And of course, people sometimes felt a little uncomfortable about the idea that God's work in a group of people would be squeezed into that particular mold. But it is actually true, isn't it, that when we more intensely give ourselves to God together in worship and under the ministry of His Word, there are certain patterns that seem to recur and are common to individuals. And in a sense, we are to see the psalmist here. He's been several days in Jerusalem. He's been to, well, he's forgotten how many services he's been to, how many sacrifices he's seen. And all through this week, he's, he's feeling that he is, he is being delivered from the sense of oppression he had when he began the pilgrimage, conscious that he was, he was in the minority and people demeaned his faith. And there is this there is this spiritual ascent that now has come to the point where in order to ascend fully, he has also got to descend more deeply. He has to discover more about the nature of his sinfulness and his need if he is going to discover yet more about the riches of God's grace. And one of the reasons this is our minister's, uh, one of our minister's many favorite psalms and the favorite psalm of uh, so many of us is because that is a recurring pattern in the Christian life. Sin and grace are mutually definitive of one another. Liberal Christians who hate the idea of speaking about individual sin Community sin is okay, structural sin is okay, but don't speak about individual sin. Thus, minimize the wonder of grace. You cannot rejoice in the greatness of forgiveness unless you have discovered the greatness of your sin. Remember what Jesus uh, says, the one who loves much is the one who is conscious he or she has been forgiven much. And so, in many ways, spiritually, this is the, this is the key psalm in these 15 psalms. Now, the psalmist is 
not concerned about external opposition, nor is he concerned about Trojan horses within the community that are likely to turn against the faith of the community. He's concerned about the Trojan horse in his own soul. And it's as he contemplates this that he marvelously comes again to a richer and fuller experience of the love of God and indeed the gospel of God as it was seen in the pages of the Old Testament Scriptures. So, this is a very simple psalm, really, in which the psalmist is taken down deeper in order to discover a grace that is much fuller and a deliverance that is much richer than he'd ever known heretofore. And of course, as he comes back on pilgrimage again and again, that's going to be a cycle right to the end of his life, or in the case of some of the women who went on pilgrimage, although not mandated to do so, also in their lives too. It's really a wonderful psalm to teach us that this cycle, discovery of my sinfulness, discovery of the adequacy of God's grace, leading to a more profound discovery of my sinfulness, leading to a richer discovery of the adequacy of God's grace, is going to be the reality of my Christian pilgrimage all the way home to glory. And so, this special psalm for this special pilgrimage is also, in a sense, a psalm for every day of the believer's life. It begins, of course, in the opening three verses, really, with a, a, a very eloquent description of the, the deeper conviction of his personal need to which he had been brought. And, and that comes out in the language he uses, doesn't it? The, the intensity of his sense of need emerges in the language he uses to describe his situation. He describes himself essentially as a drowning man, out of the depths. That's a language that in the Old Testament always refers to the notion of water and sea, which, of course, uh, the people feared so much. Uh, it spoke to them of, of chaos and darkness. Uh, indeed, it spoke to the whole of the ancient Near East of chaos and darkness and powers that you couldn't control. And uh, he's speaking here like someone who feels that his sin is drowning him. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. They say, don't they, that uh, two things happen to a drowning man. One is that the, the whole of his life flashes before him and the other is that he hears voices. And that's the picture here. A person whose whole life is flashing before them, the sense of sin, the kind of onrush of the multitude of ways in which they have dishonored God and harmed others, and it seems there is no, there is no dam that can be shut. 
It's as though one having entered the memory brings with it a thousand others that crush the soul and this deep sense that he has that there are, there are, there are voices that accompany his sin and his guilt, and they are, they, are like, they are like so many judges pronouncing the sentence of guilty on him, the law with which he was familiar. And actually, he had seen and heard so much of the law on pilgrimage. He'd seen so many of these sacrifices, and what they did was speak about sin. The only reason most of these sacrifices were made was because there was sin. And I have very little doubt this psalm is here because uh, if your experience is anything like mine, as you find yourself in a situation where the people of God are worshiping Him more intensely, when you're under the Word of God more than ordinary, sometimes you you look around and you, you think these people have no idea of how absolutely unfit I am to be in their presence. And you, you know that we think well of one another, but you realize that uh, there is no reason anyone would think well of you, uh, the failures in your spiritual life. The, the sloth in your love for the Lord, the, the ways in which you, you secretly and privately break the commandments, and all of these, these voices of accusation, it feels as though they are, they're just pouring in upon him, and so he's, he's crying out, oh God, will you hear my voice in the midst of this? Uh, he's like a drowning man calling out to the heavens, oh God, hear me, and the cause of all this? Well, the cause of all this is his iniquity. In verse 3, O Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who could stand? It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, you see the picture. Um, you couldn't do this in every church. You couldn't use this illustration of church. But fancy if we were in the middle of singing Psalm 130 as we just were. Fancy by mistake the next file that had gone on was a description of your sin. I mean in detail, a description of what was going on in your mind. Perhaps what was going on in your mind even when you were singing the praises of God. The, the deepest expressions of your heart, the way in which God was working in your life, but you were keeping Him back. That's what He's saying. Actually, He uses the same language He uses later on about the watchmen, the watchmen who are, who are, who are waiting for the morning. And He says, oh Lord, if you were, if you were like those watchmen and you were chalking up my sins, and they appeared. I couldn't even stay in the building. I couldn't come back to the building. And uh, this is where he is. In, in, uh, 
you know, uh, if someone says this to you, you know, your, your innate tendency as a sympathetic Christian is to say, it's okay, none of us is perfect. It's okay, don't, don't worry about it. But you see, he, he's way past that superficiality. He's like, I, he's like Isaiah staggering out of the temple, conscious of the fact that he is a great sinner. And I sometimes, in my moderate moments, imagine him going to his best friend in a broken man and saying, saying to him, Benjamin, I, I am the chief sinner in Jerusalem. I've seen the Lord. I I'm utterly undone. He he has taken me to pieces. I feel as if everything I thought about myself is false, and I feel as if I've disintegrated. And, you know, if I'm Pastor Benjamin, I'm patting him on the shore and saying, dear brother Isaiah, you're actually, you're the best preacher in, in, in any of the churches here, you know. Um, you're fine. And I see Isaiah reaching over and taking him by the scruff of the neck. So, you're not, you're not listening to me. Because to discover that you, to discover that sin goes right down into your very being, like David saying, it goes, it was right there in my being from my mother's womb, not to excuse myself, but to describe the reality of my life. That's a tremendous shock. The the ordinary unbeliever is quite prepared to admit that they commit sins. That's not a problem. But the ordinary unbeliever, and even the extraordinary unbeliever, assumes that deep down, when you get deep down underneath, we're all basically good. And to discover that the reverse is the case can be a tremendous shock. Um, You know, to sail along in your Christian life and then, like this psalmist, to get a glimpse of the, the twistedness of your heart and the ongoing perversity that remains in your soul even though you are a true believer. That's a tremendous shock. But we need that kind of shock, don't we? Because it's only when God begins to do this work of deconstruction that we're in any situation for there to be real reconstruction, all that stuff that's going on uh, downtown. You know, one day there will be the reconstruction, whatever the citizenry of Dundee thinks about the architecture, there will be something new and fresh and at least intended to be glorious, but it wouldn't have been possible without the deconstruction, without the demolition. And our God is in the demolition business as well as in the construction business, and He can never do the glorious work of real construction in our lives 
without all the time doing the work of deconstruction and demolition and making us realize who we really are in and of ourselves, that we may catch a better glimpse of who He is in Himself and what He is towards us. And that's, that's why you notice right here in verse 2, what He says to the Lord is, Lord, let Your ears be attentive to my cry for in, in my NIV, the NIV keeps changing, in my NIV it's mercy, but enshrined in the word He uses is the Old Testament word for grace. Hear my cry for grace. And this is the point, because it's so easy, isn't it, to go on the way in the spiritual pilgrimage and the Christian life, thinking, I needed grace at the beginning, but I've made progress now. And so, as I make progress in the Christian life, isn't this how it works in the Christian life? As you make progress, you need less and less grace. And you see, maybe he had assumed that, but now he's discovering that the very reverse is the case. Because as he as he is dismantled by God and sees the twistedness and the sinfulness. Uh, he's, he's wanting to drink in grace, to drink in God's mercy to him. And so, he's come to a deeper conviction of his personal need in order that he might come to a richer appreciation of God's grace. It's the man or the woman who knows that they have had most to be forgiven, and it has been forgiven, who will be the man or the woman who loves much. That, incidentally, is why it's possible to have been a Christian 40 years, 50 years, and love the Lord Jesus less than a baby Christian who at least has grasped how much he or she has been forgiven. This is really something that the way this comes out is in disposition, in the atmosphere of our lives. So, there's a deeper conviction of personal need, and there's a richer appreciation of God's grace. One of the wonderful things about the Old Testament Scriptures, as you know, is that they are very rich in the vocabulary for sin. They say, I'm not a linguist in this sense, but they say you can always tell the importance of something in a culture by the variety of terms that are available to you for that thing. So, for example, apparently there's a multitude of words for wind in Japanese because wind is a big thing in Japan. And there is a wide vocabulary for sin in the Old Testament because sin is a big thing in the eyes of God. And as you remember, for example, in Psalm 51, David, David kind of ransacks the vocabulary to to bring out the multifaceted character, the, 
the, the varied twistednesses of the soul that sin is. But wonderfully, there's also a very rich vocabulary in the Old Testament for forgiveness. And that's what he's longing for here, isn't it? He says, if you, Lord, should keep a record of my sins, who could stand? But, verse 4, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There are several uh, words in Hebrew that are translated in our English Bibles by the single word forgiveness, and they're trying to convey to us the, the several dimensions that are involved in the forgiveness of our sins. And this is a particularly interesting one because this word conveys the idea of sending away the forgiveness of my sins is the sending away of my sins. And interestingly, its vocabulary, I think possibly, I don't think anyone could be dogmatic about this, but I think in this instance, a psalm sung in the context of Jerusalem, in this instance, the psalmist is particularly thinking about the events of the Day of Atonement. Remember when the two goats were taken as sacrifices and, and one was slaughtered and the, the blood sprinkled. And then when that had been done, there was, a, there was another part, actually in some ways a more vivid part to the ceremony where the priest would, would put his hands on the, the live goat and over that goat's head he would confess the sins of the people. And then someone who had been appointed to the task would, would lead the goat out of the temple, out of the city of Jerusalem, and into the wilderness. And it would be sent away, bearing the sins of the people that had now, in a picture, been transferred to the head of the goat. It was the scapegoat. It's where the, the English word scapegoat comes from. And these, these, these two parts of this sacrificial ritual are so expressive of how our sins actually are forgiven in Christ, aren't they? The way in which our Savior bears our sin on the cross and His crucifixion, but in His crucifixion, he, he seems to be taken, taken actually, the New Testament hints, in the power of the Holy Spirit into this, this wilderness place, this no-man's land, where he's, he's literally hanging between earth and heaven, where, where men crucify Him, and where He has this sense that He has himself being deserted by God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is because he is the scapegoat. And because you remember how I, Isaiah put this? He says, God himself has been like the priest, taking the sins of his people, and God himself has laid on the suffering servant the iniquities of us all. 
And so He has been wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, and He has been chastised for our peace. And with His suffering, we are made whole. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to His own way, but the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And David didn't know that. None of the psalmists knew how it would happen. They only had the picture. They only had the hint. But the hints told them how it was that God would do it. And of course they knew this isn't, this isn't actually the real final way God is going to do it. This is just a hint of how He's going to do it. And we know this isn't the real and final way because we're going to be back next year doing the same thing and the next year doing the same thing until the real scapegoat would come and the Lord would lay on him the iniquities of us all and he would be out in the wilderness, outside the camp, which is the language Hebrews uses about what happened to him all as He is saying to us here, in order that our sins might be forgiven. But you notice, uh, notice the implication the psalmist draws from that. It, it's, it's, it's striking, isn't it, verse 4? Oh, he says, thank God, with you there is forgiveness. Everything that might have gone up here, it's, it's all been it's all been taken down from the board, and it's been placed on the head of Jesus, and Jesus has, Jesus has been sent away into the, into the outer darkness bearing my sin, and it's gone from me, and God will not look upon it any longer because His Son has given His life for my sins. Now, what's the result of that? There is forgiveness with you, He says that you may be feared. Now, let me put it this way. Unless that is the logic you use about what Christ has done, you haven't yet discovered how the gospel works. So, this is immensely challenging because we live in a little subculture of evangelical Christianity that tends to teach, if there is forgiveness with Him, then you don't need to take your sin very seriously any longer. If there is forgiveness with Him, then the immediate implication is that you will be happy all the day. But that's not the implication the psalmist draws. Here is the logic. The person who has been conscious of the depth and cost of forgiveness is the person who at last has truly come to know what it is to fear the Lord. And I'm afraid to say that our subculture understands this so little that it thinks the psalmist is speaking about terror and cringing. Couldn't possibly be thinking about that. No, what he means, is, as we sometimes say, is that the fear of the Lord in the Scriptures is so to see the wonder of His pardon as to desire to live the rest of your days under His smile 
and never do anything that would cause him to frown. When that's your spirit, that's what the psalmist means by the fear of the Lord. I wonder if you know uh, the poem by uh, F.W. Faber. Um, F.W. Faber got many things wrong, and he got some things wonderfully right. But here's what he wrote. He says, My fear of thee, O Lord, exalts like life within my veins, a fear which rightly claims to be one of love's sacred pains. There is no joy the soul can meet upon life's various road like this sweet fear that sits and shrinks under the eye of God. Oh, thou art greatly to be feared, thou art so prompt to bless. The dread to miss such love as thine makes fear but love's excess. For fear is love, and love is fear, and in and out they move. But fear is an intenser joy than mere unfrightened love. They love thee little, if at all, who do not fear thee much. If love is thine attraction, Lord, fear is thy very touch. Now, that's what he's speaking about, don't you think? There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. What does that mean? It means that forgiveness never makes me flippant. Forgiveness makes me awestruck. It makes me, it makes me tingle. In a sense, it makes me, it makes me tremble with such emotions of joy that I'm almost frightened to have them. Can this really be true? Can this possibly last? But of course, he understands that it can last and will last forever because the forgiveness is… You see, this is why he uses this language. The forgiveness is not like your forgiveness or somebody else. Okay, forget about it. No, the forgiveness is the deep costliness of Christ carrying the cross to Calvary, and there being nailed and lifted up, and the darkness coming in order that no one would see. Surely this is part of the meaning of the darkness of Calvary, that no one would see this awful moment when the Son of God felt that His heavenly Father had abandoned Him. And of course, there was no answer. Remember how the word voices came from heaven? Voices came from heaven on several occasions in Scripture, even to Jesus, but not this time. Why? Because the voice that usually came from heaven was speechless, nothing to say. Would it be too daring to say, that the Father was so choked with the emotion of love that His Son was willing to do this for sinners like us, that He couldn't speak. 
That's the wonder of forgiveness. That's why he says there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And then you notice he goes on to speak so marvelously about the effects of all this in a deeper experience of repentance. So, there's a deeper sense of sin. There's a, there's a richer experience of pardon, and there's a fuller experience of repentance. Uh, you remember a few weeks ago, David Robertson was preaching in 2 Corinthians 7, the difference between true repentance and false repentance. There is a kind of repentance that leads to death, but there's a kind of repentance that leads to life. And uh, it's the repentance that's rooted in forgiveness. Actually, our own standards, standards of our church emphasize that repentance doesn't emerge in our souls merely out of the condemnation of the law. Repentance emerges from the sense we have that there is forgiveness with Him. That's what causes us to turn. The law shows us why we need to turn, but it's pardon and forgiveness that causes us to turn. And you see how this emerges here. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His Word I put my hope. Now, here's an interesting question. At least I think it's interesting. I hope you think it's interesting. What word does he hope in? See, the psalmist isn't the kind of person that comes along to you and says, you just need to trust the Bible. The Bible is just a book with covers on it. It's what's in the Bible that you trust. And so, you want to say, what in the Bible do I need to trust? So, you're in difficulties, and a Christian comes along in well-meaning, says, well, just trust God's Word. And your heart cries out, well, which Word should I trust for this situation? What's he waiting for? Well, we've seen in these Psalms, the, the, the big Word of God in these Psalms is the ironic blessing, isn't it? That's the Word he's waiting for. You see, he's, he's been thinking about his sins being carried away, and, and that part of the service, the Day of Atonement, that, that part is, that's been done. But now you see he's waiting for the Word, looking to the Lord. And what's the Word? It's the Word that will come to him when the, when the priest pronounces the benediction, the Lord bless you. And you see, he's, he's felt as though he's under the curse of sin, and, and now the Lord's coming and blessing him because his sin has been carried away. The Lord bless you, keep you, keep you. He feels so fragile. Lord, make his face shine upon you. Oh, Lord, I'm a forgiven sinner, and I see your face shining on me. I do not want any cloud ever to come between the beauty of your face and the need of my soul. And the Lord lift up His countenance, turn His face towards you. You see, well, you see the picture, don't you? 
You know, if you're a parent, you've done it. If, you're a ch- if you were a child, and most of you look as though, although David referred to people from other planets this morning, most of you were probably children on this planet, and you remember doing something and, and just turning around to see whether it was good or bad, to see if they were looking, and especially if it was good, to see if they saw it. Turn your face towards me. I just want to know the rest of my life, Father, that not only have you forgiven me, but your face is always turned towards me. Contrast that with the beginning of some, oh God, hear my voice. There are so many voices, and I hear them all, and they're shouting at me about my sin, and I'm condemning myself, and I I feel as though the waters are coming over me and drowning me, and I want to live forever knowing that your face is turned towards me. You know, the other psalm that speaks so much about drowning is Psalm 69. And Psalm 69, interestingly, of all the psalms, of all the 150, Psalm 69 that speaks about the one who is drowning is the psalm that's most used in the New Testament to describe the work of the Lord Jesus. Drowning on the cross under our sins, the dark sky hiding the Father's face, the ironic benediction not working that afternoon in order that it might work every morning, every afternoon, and every evening in our lives. And that's why he finishes by turning to others. Of course, he, of course he wants to turn to others and say, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, because here is what I have discovered. With the Lord is unfailing love, love in which He obligates Himself to me. That's what He's done in Christ. He has actually obligated Himself to save me, and with Him is full redemption, because He Himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Now, you see, when the psalmist comes up out of this water, he doesn't want to go back into that water ever again, but he's going to be back in that water again and again and again, all the way to glory in order that He may be brought back, as how often do we need this, brought back to this beautiful simplicity. Lord, You've pardoned me in Christ, and I want to live the whole of my life knowing two things, knowing that Your smile is directed towards me, and knowing that in whatever situation I am, I can glance round, and I'll know that you're watching me, and you're looking out for me, and you'll never stop gazing upon me in your grace. The end of the day, it's true, isn't it? It's not so much what we are to do in the Christian life. It's what we are to discover He has done that transforms everything. Our Heavenly Father, 
how remarkable it is to us that in these Psalms you, you catch us up into their truth because the things of which they speak are the realities of our own lives. This is, this is not a dead and ancient book to us, but this is the book in which as we read ourselves in the New Testament, you address us as a father, and we thank you for this particular psalm, and especially for the way in which it points to the pardoning grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, O Lord, to live in the sea of forgiveness that His blood provides. Help us to glance heavenward and to desire never, ever to offend you and to live daily as those who know that your, your eye that is on the sparrow is all the more on your people. We bless you for the forgiveness of our sins and for the joy of knowing that they are forever forgiven. Hear us and bless us, we pray. Help us to live in this during the course of the week for our Savior's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.